But the Christmas story is such a beautiful story. And we end up losing that mystery. We end up losing that majesty. We end up losing the simplicity and yet the intense complexity of all that's involved in that Christmas story. And so this morning, one of the things that I wanted to do, other than check out the furniture, one of the things I wanted to do this morning was to for us to see that Christmas story in Luke chapter 2 once again and, and be a part of that and experience that together because it is such an incredible uh, story. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to open up to Luke chapter 2. Uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. That's going to be where we are today. Uh, and as we do that, um, we want to... The, the way I want to do it this morning is to just kind of break it apart for us and not look at, not look at it, just read it as we often do, but to actually think about the various parts of this story. And so would you join your hearts with me in asking God to be able to speak through me, but also to give us an alertness and an awareness of what God wants to say to us this morning through this message. Father God, we thank you that you continue to speak to us. You never tire of speaking to us. Though sometimes we act like we tire of hearing from you. Lord, there's so many voices, so many things that compete for our attention. This morning, would you calm us down a little bit and give us, make us alive to what you're trying to say. Make us alive to your word. Make us alive to your truth. Well, we've heard this story hundreds of times, many of us. Make it new and fresh for us today. So that we may be as in awe of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ as were those shepherds out in the field that night. And so, Lord, we're listening. We ask you to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 2, we're going to begin, and, and we're just going to take this little portion of Scripture and, and, uh, and use it. Uh, the, word, the verses should be on your handout, so if you don't have your Bible with you, We'll also put them up here on the screen for you as well. But let's begin. Let's take a look. And it begins in verse 1 with this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Isn't it interesting that the story doesn't begin once upon a time. And it doesn't end here, what we're going to read, with they lived happily ever after. This is not a fairy tale. In fact, Luke is one of those gospel writers who's serious about getting details right. Now, all of them got details right, but I mean, he's serious. He set out and said, hey, I'm, I'm setting out to write an accurate story about Jesus. And so he included a lot of details that some of the other gospel writers don't include. And here he tells us, listen, he says here, when Augustus, now Augustus was a real person. When Augustus was emperor of Rome, he, he was actually the, the ruler, the Caesar. He was the leader in Rome. And then there was Quirinius, another real person who was governor of Syria, another real place. And this real command was given which had to be one of the biggest pains to people 
that was ever given. And that is, here's, here's what we want you to do. We want everybody to register. And to do that, you need to go back to not your necessarily your hometown, but the home of your ancestors. So you trace your lineage back and you find out way back when we were from this particular town. And then you go back and you register there. Now, why were they doing this registration, this census? For one reason. Taxes. Exactly. Taxes. They wanted to know how much money, how much revenue can we expect to get from the people this coming year. And so that was the whole point. That that was the reasoning behind all of this. And so we pick up in verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. What an inconvenience. Can you imagine all that had to be due to get ready to go to do something like this? If you'll remember, Joseph was a carpenter, and so he probably had a place of business, either his own or he worked for someone else. And it was not only him, but everybody around him was having to do the same kind of stuff. They were having to figure out, okay, how do we manage this? How do we close up shop? How do we, how do we maneuver things? Do I quit my job? Do I sell my house? What do I need to do? Because I've got I've to gotta pack up and I've got to go do... Listen, the next time April 15th rolls around, go back and read Luke chapter 2 and realize maybe we aren't quite as bad off as we thought we were. No one's asking you to pack up and, and go and having to make these big lifestyle changes in order to go register so that you can be taxed. But Joseph was of the lineage of King David, and King David was from Bethlehem, and therefore that's where he had to go in order to register for these taxes. And he had to carry with him a wife who was, uh, we don't know exactly how far along she was. Based on the story, she was pretty far along. And they had to make this trek from Nazareth down to Bethlehem, which is south of Jerusalem. And it's not an extremely long period of time, but they couldn't go down to the bus station and get tickets. They couldn't call a taxi. They couldn't call Uber. There was, there was no other means to get there other than walking or on a donkey or on some type of a cart. And so they began their trek after making the arrangements to begin their trek. And again, traveling with a woman who's very pregnant. Some of you guys have had to do that. And some of you women have experienced it from your perspective. It's not always the easiest thing to do. But they had to get, to, get there. And, and once they got there... Then they had to find a place to stay. Now, it's pretty easy for us because I don't have my phone with me, but you could take your phone right now, and if you had to go somewhere over the next few days and you needed to make a reservation there, you could take your phone and you could easily make a reservation either by calling or, or going to Hotels.com or Expedia.com or one of those one of those dot-coms, and you could find yourself a hotel room and book it in advance, and it would be there waiting for you when you arrived. They didn't have that option. And in fact, the place they were going wasn't full of hotels. They were going to a little town called Bethlehem, five miles south of Jerusalem, and there wasn't that much to it. As a matter of fact, most of the inns would have been homes that have rooms that could be used. And what we picture, man, we go to a hotel, we've got it pretty good. We've got our own room, we've got our own bathroom, we've got all... 
No, we're not talking about that. You can imagine that Bethlehem would have been filled with people who were sleeping on floors or anywhere they could find in order to bunk out for the night because they weren't ready for this. It wasn't like Atlanta planning for the Olympics. They had years to get ready. No. Okay, we want you to do this. Bam. You got to do it. And you have to figure it out the best way that you can. It was a disruption, a complication in life. But I do want you to know this. Isn't it great that God can even use the burden of taxation for his purposes? God could even use this, which seems like the most ridiculous of commands, the most ridiculous of mandates, that God could use even this for his purpose because Jesus, the Messiah, was not supposed to be born in Nazareth. The prophet Micah had said centuries before, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. In other words, the father had this planned out a long time ago. That this was not going to be something that was going to be on the stage in Rome or in the palace in Jerusalem, but instead was going to be in this little backwater town whose only claim to fame was a little plaque that said, David slept here. That was it. And yet, God maneuvered this situation in order to get Mary and Joseph to the place they needed to be to fulfill the prophecy from long ago. We need to understand this, and and this is a little sidelight, but some of you need to know this because some of you are going through extraordinarily challenging times in your lives, and you need to understand that God is not on vacation. God is not unconcerned. God is not uninvolved. God is there. And he's doing something through the very circumstances that are causing you so much anguish. Hold on to that. Trust in that. Cling to that when the going gets super challenging. Well, we pick up in verse verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and she laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I spent a little while over the last couple of weeks looking at artwork. Now, I love to do this uh, when I I like to go to museums. Washington, D.C., when I can go up there, I could stay for days in the National Gallery just walking and looking at the paintings And it's got, Jackie's a little bit like me. She likes to do that kind of thing. Nancy, not so much. Jay, even less. And so when we had a short period of time up in Washington, D.C. a few years back, I wanted to go and hang around the National Gallery, and I was willing to stand in line to see all the little Rembrandts and to keep going around. And Jay and Nancy, they they were ready to go like hours ago. And Jackie and I are just going through there. And I'm just going, hey, look at... 
Look at how Rembrandt uses light and darkness in this painting and in this painting. And I'm just kind of going back. And, and, and so I enjoyed that kind of stuff. So I spent a little time over the last couple of weeks looking at um, paintings that kind of revolve around Luke chapter 2. And there, there are a lot of them. Through the centuries, there are a lot of artists who've taken the time to, to picture not only the nativity scene with Jesus in the manger and not only the shepherds out in the field, but even... Even incidences like this where you have Mary and Joseph coming to find a place to stay in this little city of Bethlehem and being turned away because there was no room for them in the end. And, and some of them seem to have, and you've seen this also in plays and movies, and, and, and people just kind of depict it different ways. Sometimes the, the, the innkeeper is very brusque and, and almost mean-spirited. I don't have any room. Get out of here. And at other times you find that Instead, it's a, a very um, kind innkeeper who realizes that coming in and he, he, even though he didn't have any room, this would be a terrible place to have a baby anyway. It's just full of people. And the best thing he could do is to take them out to his lean-to or to the cave out back where he usually kept the animals, a place where it was a little bit cooler and uh, a little bit uh, quieter and out of the elements, a, a place where that baby could be born and there could be some modicum of privacy. And so we, we really don't know all those particulars and Luke doesn't give us exactly that. But what we do know and what he does tell us is, that listen, they came to give birth to the king of the universe and there was no room. There was no place. Now, I, I don't know how Mary and Joseph necessarily felt about this. Maybe they're like, oh, just, we're just trusting Jesus. We're, I mean, we're, well, we're just here. No, we're, we're just, yeah, we're just trusting God. He's going to get us to the right place at the right time. We're just trusting God. Um, if it had been me, I'd, I'd be just ticked off. Place door to door to door to door. I'd just be ticked off at every opportunity and going, well, this is never going to work. This is never going to happen. And, you know, I, 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 you had to imagine there had to be a level of frustration in all that. And yet, we find here this simple, I mean, he puts it so simply. That Jesus was born and he was laid in a manger and he was wrapped up, bound up with strips of cloth to keep him comfortable. This is a story of Christmas. And it tells us something important. God doesn't always do things the way we do them if we were God. If we were God, we might have written the story a, a little bit differently. Why this insignificant, out-of-the-way village? Why not Rome? Why not Jerusalem? Why not a palace? Why not a golden cradle? Why not these finely woven blankets to wrap he who is the Messiah? But instead, what we get is cave, the stable, feeding trough, strips of cloth that were probably all that they had to use. We sing a song sometimes that has these words, king of all days, also highly exalted, glorious in heaven above, humbly you came to this earth, you created all for love's sake became poor. 
Well, the Apostle Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 2. Though he was in the form of God, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. No, God didn't do things the way I would have done it, and then he kept doing things differently than I would have done it, things that are contrary to human wisdom. Pick up in verse 8, and we read this. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, look, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So what we have is a shift of scenery. Luke has gotten Jesus to Bethlehem and got him settled in uh, in a a stable and, and has Jesus wrapped securely there with his mom and dad laying in a feeding trough and he shifts the scene out into a field now i have taken the liberty of uh, pulling a picture from our trip to the holy land a couple of years ago and and this is one of my favorite pictures i don't know if you can make it out make everything out but basically you can see a bunch of sheep on a rocky hillside eating what grass there is to be found up there. It didn't look like an abundance, but there were a lot of sheep, so they were finding something to eat. And then, I don't know if you can see it, but down kind of in the lower left-hand corner, there's a dark figure sitting on a rock. That's a shepherd. That's a shepherd on the hillside of Bethlehem. Now, it's not the one here, because he'd be really old. But that, that is a shepherd, and it just kind of blew me away that I had the opportunity to stand there in Bethlehem and to look out on the hillside, seeing the sheep, and to see a shepherd caring for his sheep, doing what shepherds do. Look at him. It looks boring. I mean, what's he doing? He's sitting there. I don't know. Maybe he's got his iPhone and he's playing Candy Crush. I don't know. But, but he's sitting there and all these sheep are just kind of wandering around. He's having to kind of keep his eye on them, make sure they don't wander off, make sure they don't get into trouble. But he's just sitting there. And you've got to think, what kind of job is this? Maybe you want to apply for it. I don't know. But no, you don't. You're out in the elements. Day and night, you're looking after these sheep. You're caring for these sheep. They're not the smartest animals in the world. And into the normalcy of their mundane day or mundane night, in this instance, something happens. It was a night that they experienced something they never experienced before. And they will never experience again. William Willimon said, Christmas is a delightful disruption of the way things normally go. Um, Just so that I can be fair here, I'm actually quoting the dean 
of Duke University, the chapel at Duke University. So, okay, I'm giving, I'm giving Duke a little credit here. This is a, this is a remarkably s- uh, simple sentence. And we understand this because uh, Christmas, even in our life, the normalcy of it, the normality of life gets, gets changed around Christmas time. But for them, boy, was it really changed because here they were, they were out on the fields, they were doing what shepherds do, and basically night turned to day. An angel of the Lord appeared, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. This was unbelievable, because God has chosen to do something once again that's out of the ordinary, contrary to what's expected. The message, the first proclamation that the Savior had been born were to shepherds. You go, well, what's the big deal about that? David was a shepherd. The 23rd Psalm says that our God is our shepherd. And Jesus himself refers to himself as a good shepherd. That sounds like a a good thing, but shepherds weren't always held in the highest regard. Most Bible scholars, in fact, believe that they were kind of outsiders, Some even go so far as to say they were outcasts. Certainly they'd be considered ceremonially unclean because they're around animals all the time. They're around feces all the time. If there were dead animals, they had to handle those dead animals. If they got cuts and scrapes, they had to touch the blood. So there was a lot going on that would have made them ceremonially unclean, meaning they couldn't go into the temple. But also, if you were ceremonially clean, you couldn't just have dinner with them. They They were excluded in a lot of ways. Uh, the Philo, who was a, a Jewish wise man who lived in Egypt at the time of Jesus, wrote that shepherds are held to be mean and inglorious. Glorious should be a good thing. Inglorious is a bad thing. In other words, they didn't have the greatest of reputations. So announcing the birth of the Messiah to such suspect men as these seems to be an odd approach for God to take because shepherds didn't have really a good reputation and and they really didn't have a lot of clout for carrying a message forward. So why would God choose to do this? Well, I think we could certainly say because God cares for those who are meek and lowly and outcast, and I think that is certainly a a good uh, theme that we could pull from that, a, a good truth that comes out of that. But I think there's also something more that goes a little bit beneath the surface that sometimes we may miss. We may find a hint in the Mishnah. Now, some of you have never heard the term Mishnah. Mishnah is basically a collection of uh, oral tradition of the rabbis through the century, teachings of the rabbis, kind of a commentary that was written down into this comprehensive uh, book. And when they wanted to understand Scripture a little better, when they wanted to understand how to live, then they would go to this Mishnah. It was kind of the running commentary. And and in the Mishnah, there's a regulation that expressly forbids the keeping of flocks throughout the land of Israel, except in the wilderness areas. And the only flocks that could be otherwise kept would be those used for temple services so think about this shepherd and we think oh that's just kind of normal there were sheep all over the place well no there weren't because of 
the changes that took place from being nomadic people to being a settled people. And when you're, when you're settled people and you're growing your crops, the last thing you want is a bunch of sheep coming through, eating your stuff. And so they moved them out into the wilderness area. So, okay, you can still tend sheep, but you have to go out of town. You have to go out into the wilderness areas to tend your sheep, except those who are being kept for temple services. They can be raised locally where is Bethlehem five miles south of Jerusalem it is very likely that the sheep that these shepherds were caring for were being raised for one purpose to be sacrificed in the temple in Jerusalem and what was that all about Well, that was about the sins of the people. You see, night and day, night and day, sheep were being offered on behalf of the sins of the people to find some way to bring them back to God, some way to find forgiveness. And so out into this field, among those temple sheep and those outcast shepherds, The announcement comes of a Savior. And what we know of Jesus is that he was the once for all sacrifice. He was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. He is our Passover Lamb. It seems rather fitting that these men who looked at themselves as dirty outcasts, who cared for the sheep who might one day be sacrificed for their own sin, would be the first to hear the message of one who would come who would sacrifice himself for their sin. And it said when they showed up, That they were terrified. Well, you can imagine. Um, if, if all of a sudden you're just going through the, the normalcy of your day and, and an angel shows up, well, that's kind of a big deal already. But the angel shows up. He's been hanging around with God and, and the glory of God. And so his very presence brought God's glory into your presence. And so the whole place just kind of lights up around you. And it said they were afraid. In fact, the the actual literal Greek says that they feared a great fear. Which when Greek compounds a word like that, it's just trying to show you that they were really, really scared. This was not like, uh, you know, somebody sneaking up and going, boo. And you go, oh. They were terrified. They were out of their minds with fear. Now, why? Think about this. They're already outcasts. They're already ridiculed. They're already, you know, feeling rejected and guilty. And here you have a glorious angel show up. You got to be thinking, this is it. I'm being taken out now. This is, this is, that's all she wrote. I am dead, dead, dead. This is gone. And so they were terrified. And the angel shows up with simple words. Fear not. Don't be afraid. 
Fear not, he says, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, we hear that um, often in the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Do you realize uh, it was t- on this date in 1965 that it first aired? I was three years old at the time that it first aired. Now, for some of you, you go, oh, well, you're just a young pup. And for others, you're going, man, you're old. 1965, that's like ancient history. Okay, 1965, it showed up. And uh, go ahead and put up that picture from, uh, I think I've got, oh, there he is. Look at him. This is Linus. And Linus is always seen with what? His blanket, his security blanket. That's his security he carries around all the time. Now, if you've watched the Charlie Brown Christmas special, you've gone through all this. There's a time in, up here on a stage, because they're getting ready for a, a Christmas show, that Linus goes out and he tells a Christmas story from Luke chapter 2. Now, I want you to notice something about the picture of Linus up there on the screen. What is it? The blanket, is he's not holding it. Do you know when he drops the blanket in the Christmas story? When the angels say, fear not. This one thing that he's held on to for security all through his life, when the angels say, fear not, he drops the blanket. That'll preach. These angels didn't show up to announce judgment. They came to announce triumph, to announce glory to announce mercy, to announce forgiveness. They said, we bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. The promise of God was fulfilled. The hope of the world had come. Joy to the world, as we sang earlier. The Lord has come. But I want to take just a few minutes, if you'll give, indulge me. I want to take a few minutes and talk about this joy. Because it's important that we understand what this joy is. So first, let me go back and give you just a little bit of Greek. In in chapter 2, verse 10, where the angels use the word joy, this is the, and I'm not going to put it on the screen because you don't need to write it down. It's the Greek word charon, C-H-A-R-E-N, that's how you transliterate it into English which has the same word as a Greek word, charis, which means grace. Thus, the word that Luke is using to express joy here, or delight, is it is joy because of grace. A joy that recognizes the undeserved favor of God to them. This joy that the Bible talks of is a deeper reality than our immediate satisfaction when circumstances are going well. It is a joy that lasts, not something that's temporary. It's here and then it's gone. It is an inner gladness that comes from a deep-seated pleasure. And it is tied more to our confidence in God than to our circumstances at the moment. It's the kind of joy when a promise is fulfilled. And in this instance, 
It's the greatest promise ever made and the greatest fulfillment ever possible. There's an old song that says this, I'm happy when everything happens to please, but happiness comes and goes. While the heart that is stayed on Jesus as Savior ever with joy overflows. Happiness happens, but joy abides in the heart that is stayed on Jesus. What a beautiful image. Happiness happens, but joy abides. Our world knows a lot about the kind of happiness that comes and goes. And far too little about the kind of joy that lasts. I need to bring that statement home. Churches know far too little, know far too much about the kind of happiness that comes and goes. And precious little about the kind of joy that lasts. Think about yourself over the course of the last few days, over the last week, the last month. I would ask you, would you consider yourself to have been full of joy over that period of time? But let me ask it a different way. The person closest to you in your life, would they have considered you to have been full of joy over the last few days, over the last few weeks, over the last month? And if not, why not? What is it that has captured your joy? What is it that has taken your joy and shoved it off into some dark closet in your life? What is it that has, as we used to tell our kids, who lit the red off your candy? Who stole your joy? Joy is not something that can be stolen. Joy is not something that can be tarnished. The reason that we as followers of Jesus Christ do not exude more joy is because we are not focused on the source of our joy. Jesus is our joy. He is the one who sustains us when things aren't going well. He is the one who gives us hope when everything around us is crumbling. He is our joy. And when we cling to other things, we sacrifice our joy. C.S. Lewis wrote, I sometimes wonder if all pleasures are not substitutes for joy. And then Thomas Aquinas Uh, way back in the 13th century, wrote something almost identical. He said, a person cannot truly live without joy. So when he's deprived of true spiritual joys, it is inevitable that he becomes addicted to earthly pleasures. And here we are at Christmas. And the big question, what do you want for Christmas? Because Our thinking is, if we get what we want, we'll be happy. Parents, you've lived long enough to know that that item your child cannot live without 
is very often put in a closet, shoved under the bed, and otherwise forgotten in just a matter of days. We seek and we search and we crave those things that are going to give us what we feel we are lacking in life. And if we're honest, a lot of times all we're trying to do is fill up that hole with stuff, with people, with activities, with achievements, whatever it is. But in the end, I think we end up agreeing with Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity. It's all vanity. It's empty. It's like chasing after the wind. I'll be honest with you. A new toy, a new car, a new house, those are nice things. Ladies, a new pair of shoes, I realize for guys it's not that big a deal, but for some some of you ladies, shoes are a big deal. Chasing after those, it won't matter. Chasing after a golf school. Listen, I enjoy golf. I hadn't touched a golf club in four months. And it's not because I didn't want to. It's just I didn't have the opportunity to do that. But you know what? If I never touch another golf club, should my joy be gone? Thank you. My joy is not attached to that stuff. My joy is not attached to anything in this world. No relationship, no possession, nothing. My joy is attached to one thing and one thing alone. For unto you this day is born a Savior. He is Christ the Lord. I have a Savior. I have a home in heaven. I have a salvation that cannot be tarnished or touched. And therefore, I should be above all people, the most joyous of all. And if you have Christ, you should too. And if you don't have that joy, why not? Is it because you don't have the source of the joy? Is it because you don't have Jesus? I want to let you know he's here and he waits for you today. And you could begin to know that joy before you leave this place. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for speaking to us through this, this story that it, it, it's 2,000 years old, and yet it still has power, it still has influence, it, it's so simple, and yet, Lord, it changes everything. And Lord, I want to pray for those today who who don't know joy because they don't know Jesus. Lord, would you move in their hearts right now by your spirit to draw those people to you, that they might come and experience the joy of salvation. I pray, Lord, for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, who've allowed allowed everything else to crowd out our joy, who begin to look for sorry substitutes to the true joy that we have in knowing that we belong to you. And Lord, I pray that just a wave of repentance would come over us right now, that we would turn away from those things so that we could turn squarely to you and find our joy in you, a joy that lasts, a joy that can't be touched, a joy that can't be tarnished, a joy that begins here and goes on forever. 
Lord, whatever it is that you want to do in us and through us today, we ask that you would begin today. Let us respond in Jesus' name. Amen.